0: RadioInfluence.com
1: You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence.
2: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Sitting Ringside. My name is David Penzer, and I am so happy once again that you are here to listen to this thing we call a podcast. Really excited for my guest this week and I've been excited almost every week because the guests have been uh, tremendous and um, but this is somebody I've wanted to get on for a while and uh, finally had the opportunity, 90 days, non-compete is up. Uh, Lance storm is going to talk to me and tell his story. And uh, one of the smartest, even keeled, uh, I know smart and intelligent is the same thing, but intelligent guys, I've ever been around in the wrestling business. And I expect that it will be fascinating um some of the things that he will throw out there that probably nobody else had ever thought rationally about because he really puts a lot of thought into everything that uh that happens in his life. So uh stay tuned for Lance Storm. Not gonna be long. Uh, hope you enjoyed talking shop a mania. Uh, let me know what you thought if you haven't already at David Penzer all one word. You could uh, follow me on Twitter at David Penzer and uh, let me know your thoughts on talking shop mania. Pretty crazy, huh? And I didn't end up going to uh, to Georgia, but uh, that's a whole other story. But, hey, the wife signed off on it, but I just didn't. I, I we, we got some tapings coming up, and I didn't want to travel so close to the tapings and put myself in a position where uh, you know I might regret it. So anyway. Uh, baseball's back for now. we'll see how long it lasts raised as I record this knock on wood doing all right uh, every once in a while the rays come out and um, and other than that, uh, just looking forward to uh, going back and uh, taping through bound for glory and uh, continuing to do this podcast and uh, and follow the business as I have for uh 40 years of my life. 45 years of my life. So, uh, let's just get to it, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome wrestling legend, trainer of the stars. There's so many things you could call him. I call him Lance Storm. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest this week on City Ringside, I would call him for sure a wrestling legend. He is also a trainer of the stars uh, and was recently a WWE producer until this whole mess started, and I'm happy to have him on the podcast. i been wanting to get him on for a while. Please welcome Lance
1: Storm. Lance, welcome to Sitting Ringside. Thank you, although I do take exception to the term legend. I, <laughs> I think people use that too loosely. Um, you know, to-
2: I agree with you, and I thought about it last night uh, when I was making notes and stuff, and I saw your body of work, and I, I said, I, I think you're there, man. Look at all the people you train. Look at the matches you put together. Look at the titles you held. I think you. I think you're there. So, uh, and I'm not just saying that because you're on my podcast. I'd say that if we were at a Denny's drinking coffee. I'd rather be at a Denny's to be honest. Well, it's just hard to drink with masks on, but that's a whole other story.
1: Yeah, I'm just. I'm getting tired of my my den and my living room. I'll tell you. You ain't kidding. At least baseball's back, but who knows how long that's
2: going to be. Uh, so I'm just trying to enjoy every game. I even enjoy when my team loses, which is. Uh, not something that I could say in prior seasons. I, I don't want to say I enjoy it, but at least it's something to watch for three and a half hours. But um, we get way off topic, which is pretty uh, common here uh, on this podcast. So you grew up in um, in Calgary, and uh, I'm assuming doesn't say anything on the internet one way or the other. But I'm assuming just because I know you're passionate the wrestling business that you grew up a fan of the Calgary territory. Would I be assuming correct?
1: Um, not really. Uh, ah see. I didn't I didn't grow up in Calgary I grew up in Ontario and the only wrestling I got early on would have been international wrestling out of Montreal and some AWA so I first became a wrestling fan seeing an AWA show that featured the Road Warriors and then eventually discovered, that the NWA existed, although I didn't get it. Cause I was like, where the hell are the road warriors? And then I stumbled onto WWF with Saturday night's main event. And then when I became what, what I would consider, you know, a, a crazy wrestling fan, that's when I started seeking out other things. And then I was in high school. I don't remember the age when our family first got cable television. Uh, we didn't have it for the longest time. That's when we got TSN and I discovered Stampede Wrestling, which would have been, I'm guessing after the first shutdown, it was during the, you know, it would have been probably the tail end of Owen Hart, you know, Larry Cameron, Muck and Singh era Stampede Wrestling was the first Stampede Wrestling I saw, which I'm guessing would have been late 80s. So,
2: um and it's funny, you live in Canada, so T- TSN was uh, uh, the equivalent, I would say, to uh to TBS for us people to us that lived here on the other side of the no, border no it was it was
1: our ESPN
2: yeah it's- yeah no i'm i'm just saying in in as far as as far as the wrestling because there's ah. so many so many canadian wrestlers that grew up watching uh, calgary and that style on TSN that really want, made them want to be a wrestler and so many uh, wrestlers especially in the south that grew up Watching Georgia Championship Wrestling and then World Championship Wrestling, so uh, the similarities I think are there. I don't know that it's uh, even Stephen, but the similarities are there. Um, but uh, so you did you travel up to Calgary specifically to train there?
1: Yeah, um, I when guess. I just des- when I decided I wanted to get into wrestling, it's like okay, how the hell do you do this? And uh, I started to, actually my my uh, stepdad started uh, making calls and looking into how you go about it. And he, you know, discovered the power plant in, in Atlanta and he, um, I think I saw a Hart brothers pro wrestling magazine or Hart brothers, uh, pro wrestling camp ad in, you know, PWI or something. So he started looking into that. He looked into the power plant and those were sort of my two choices and staying in Canada made it a hell of a lot easier. And then To me, Stampede Wrestling also had the rep or the tradition of smaller guys. You know, Pillman had came through here, Dynamite and, you know, so many, you know, successful smaller guys had been here. Owen, that it seemed like it would be a good place for someone, you know, a a quarter of inch shy of six feet and 215 pounds to have a chance and staying in uh, Canada certainly made it easier than trekking my ass down to Atlanta.
2: Yeah, you're probably right in hindsight, especially at that period of time, because I was there in uh, the power plant uh, at at that time. And yeah, it was definitely there looking for bigger guys for sure. So I think you made the right decision. I did see, though, by the way, that um, the Hart Brothers Wrestling School really wasn't uh, being trained by the Hart Brothers. You just got to meet uh, one of the Hart Brothers to pay your to write your check to. And then
1: uh, he left and uh, and a couple other local guys train you. Yeah, which isn't that uncommon. In no, the, no, I know the wrestling school, but yeah, Keith Hart was the the name behind it. But he showed up the first day to do all the paperwork and collect the money. And you know, he showed up a couple other days. You know, there was the day where he showed up to demonstrate all of his father's great uh, stretching techniques, which I, I think was strategic in that you know, for that first week, we're like, you know, where the hell are the hearts? And then Keith comes in and you know stretches till we're all screaming and crying and then when he didn't show up again we all were pretty happy with that
2: <laughs> oh i guarantee you that was the plan uh so uh and you meet chris jericho uh hat do you think do you think that your journey wouldn't
1: would be any would be different if you hadn't met chris jericho oh god yeah um that's the thing, because again, I was so naive. You know, I assumed that you know it's a pro wrestling training school, and you know, you you watch wrestling on TV, especially in you know eighty eight and eighty nine. You're a WWE fan. You're a Road Warrior fan. You expect a bunch of big, jacked up professional athletes. So I was expecting that. So again, I trained like a madman. I was going to be in you know great shape and as big as I could be, hoping that you know my conditioning and determination would, you know, carry me through the fact that I'm small. And then you show up at you know, pro wrestling camp, and you realize that 80% of the people, you know, don't look like they've ever played a sport before. So I got picked up, and we all stayed in this Okotoks Inn, this hotel in Okotoks just south of Calgary, and, you know, you meet the skinny kid, you meet the big fat kid, you meet the uncoordinated kid, and I'm walking down the hall of this hotel because, you know, there was, you know, say 12 of us, and, you know, eight or 10 of them are already there, and I don't see anybody that at first glance has a hope. So I'm actually in my head going, can I, cause I, uh, this was before one way tickets were even a feasible thing. You, you know, it was cheaper to buy a round ticket. So I had bought a round trip ticket and I think I set the return date for like a year and I'm walking down this hall going, can I change my, can I, I need to go home. This place is a farce. <laughs> and I was wondering if I could change my ticket, go home and then contact the power plant. And then when I got to the end of the hall, there was a fire escape. uh, And I was like, I I need some air. And I stepped out on the fire escape. And Jericho in his beat-up 76 green Volare pulls in and gets out of his car. And I see a guy who's, you know, obviously an athlete, obviously weight training. He's got arms. He's got shoulders. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's someone else. And, you know, I run down the, the fire escape to introduce myself to Chris Irvin. And you know I, he's got a you know a trunk in his in in a, uh, a chest in the trunk of his car was his stuff, and I'm like, hey, I'll help you with that, and I helped him move his stuff in because I'm like, there's someone else. Maybe I'm not insane for being here. So had he not drove up, I don't know if I even would have broken in, in Calgary. I might have packed up and went home, and then went to the power plant and been beat up because I was small. Who knows?
2: Crazy. What 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 about uh, your personalities? Did did it was it just that there was somebody else who. Who, who you thought might have a chance of being, uh, breaking in the business or did you guys get along on a personal level?
1: I think both. Cause we did get along great. We spent, you know, so much time together. We you know we'd, you know, we'd go to the gym. We'd, uh, he had a, I think it was an aunt who lived in Okotoks and I think he'd go there to do laundry and we'd be like, you know, practicing or trying wrestling holds and, you know, in her backyard and, and, The entire camp, we tried to, you know, anytime there's a drill, do it with each other because it was just so blatantly obvious that there was us and then, you know, the majority of everybody else, but... I think it had to have been, you know, the wrestling end of it, because realistically, when you look at it, we have very little in common. Otherwise,
2: that's why I asked because I, I, I know him well, and I know you a little bit, although I haven't seen you in a while. Um, yeah. And personality wise, I, I very different. That's why I asked.
1: Yeah. And, our, you know, because he's so into music and I'm not really a big music guy that we didn't have much in common other than the wrestling end of it. But when you're starting wrestling camp, I guess sure. that's enough. And I think that's why, like, you know, I consider him one of my best friends ever and probably always will. And I doubt I go a week without texting him on some front. But it's like it's not like we're close that we, you know, chat for long periods of time. Because, again, outside of wrestling and just, I think, mutual respect and the journey, we don't have that much in common. You guys
2: found yourself uh, in... The South, in the deep, deep, deep South, and Smoky Mountain wrestling came in as the thrill seekers. That had to be, uh, and 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 I I heard his perspective. I'm curious on your perspective, on your perspective, what you your thoughts were when you went from Calgary, Canada, to Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, that environment of uh, territorial wrestling that you probably never saw before.
1: Yeah, it was certainly a culture shock. I I'm really glad. Like it, it's one of the times in my career that I'm most happy that I got because it was really the only authentic territory, you know, sure. from an old school territory standpoint where, you know, you, you've got your loop of your regular towns, you've got the occasional spot show and you've got, you know, the old traditional, you know, once a month or whatever, you tape your TV, you got your squash matches and stuff. So it really was, you know, that traditional territory. So I'm so glad I did it, but it was shocking. Um, <laughs> And, and I think, too, which is probably a little bit different for me, it's like I also got married like literally, I think, a day or two before I moved there. So my life changed, you know, in a big way on top of the culture shock of Smoky Mountain Wrestling. But it was, yeah, I think the, the biggest thing for me, and I, I just mentioned it somewhere. I don't remember who I was talking to. And, and it's appropriate today with, you know, the Black Lives, uh, Black Lives Matter movement going on. I didn't. And this was 1994. I didn't believe racism on a large scale still existed that again, I grew up in a town where there was one other black family and his dad was a surgeon. So they were the rich family in town. So it's like, I never had an opportunity to experience. Racism.
2: I love that. I love that story just on its face. That's that, that's what everything should be. Just not that I don't get into politics and stuff, but I did I, something hit me about that story because that's just, that. that's just perfect.
1: But anyway, go on. So, you know, I thought it was, you know, it was something that was in movies and, and used to be around. And then I got to, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky, you know, West Virginia and, and so forth, uh, North Carolina, and it still exists. And the, the, you know, the New Jack gangsters, you know, New Jack and Mustafa gangsters right. feud with the Rock and Roll Express. It was just unbelievable. That you know the baby faces were being supported by a crowd that would scream the n word at people, and I was just like, what? What is this? And it was just, it was shocking. But you know, as a territory, it was so much fun, and I was a gigantic Midnight Express fan. Uh, Bobby Eaton was one of my all time favorites as a fan, and I love the Midnight Express. So actually, getting to work a program with Jim Cornette. Was probably my first. If you have sort of, and again, I, I don't think I marked out. I don't think I've ever been that bad. But if there was ever one where your wrestling fan self sat back and went, "This is really cool," I think the feud with Jim Cornette and Smoky Mountain was my first.
2: Did you ever, see, you know, Jim Cornette's famous for losing his shit. At, excuse my French, and and cutting promos and all that. Did you ever see that when you were uh, when you were there at Smoky Mountain, or was he he tried to 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 be more of a, uh, uh,
1: a businessman, so to speak. Oh, hell no. Jimmy's still. <laughs> he, 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 I, you know, I, I, I've seen him, you know, you know, kick and throw the monitor backstage while, you know, throwing his headset around and screaming and. And that sounds,
2: that sounds like a Tuesday for him.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I remember the, the one was always funny. He would scream and lose his shit. And I'm trying to remember must be on a replay because I can't see why I would be watching the monitor backstage with him because i was the one in the ring that he was talking about but bob coddle obviously liked the name jericho a lot and when we first got there i got there i think before jericho so i did a couple of singles things before maybe it was after jericho had broke his arm but bob coddle would always call me jericho (laughs) and i remember jimmy you know throwing his headset and kicking the monitor with you know again what's your language restrictions on this show There is none. None? Okay. He'd be like, God damn it, Jesus Christ, can't you learn his goddamn fucking name? He's not fucking Jericho. And then the headset goes flying. And that's Jimmy. That about sums it up. And I I think too, and this is where obviously today uh, his rants have gone to a, a different level. But when, you know, I worked with Jimmy again in OVW and, and that's something that I learned early in Smoky Mountain was once you get past the anger and the passion and being called a stupid bumblefuck and a mouth breathing knuckle dragon, whatever his advice is often usually really good. And he screams and rants because he is passionate and cares. So as long as you don't take it personally, I learned a lot from Jimmy and again, you get yelled at and it's like, it's not my first time and won't be my last, but yeah, he was always the amazing rant. And again, I was there in OVW, the night he he lost his his shit and cut the promo, screaming, and yelling and match with Linda Miles uh, back in OVW. I was there for oh. the paintbrushing, slapping of uh, Santino in OVW. So I, oh, I've I've wow. seen Jimmy at his most hot-headed.
2: Wow! So I've never heard from anybody who was actually there from the Sant for the Santino uh, incident, for lack of a better word. How horrified were you that he's actually laying his hands on on a piece of talent?
1: Uh, I, I, was pretty shocked. Cause again, I was, you know, a WWE employee as, as Cornette, I think was at the time, but Santino was beginner class. So he had nothing to do with me, nothing to do with WWE. And part of me was waiting, you know, to, to jump in and break it up if it got ugly. But the thing is too, like I mentioned, Jimmy loses his cool. I don't know if it was right before this, but I've seen Jim Cornette smack the living hell out of himself to you know point to talent that it's like you know lay your slaps and you can hit somebody and then he will smack the hell out of himself as a demonstration sure so when cornet because the idea was you know uh boogeyman was getting the push as a boogeyman and when he boogeyman went by santino santino didn't sell he sort of smiled and laughed and when jimmy found out he was in the beginner class he was like god damn it son of a bitch should know (laughs) <laughs> so he, you know, got him brought back and started screaming. at it's like, you need to sell. What if he'd have fucking smacked you? And then he slapped Santino and he slapped him a few times. I don't remember how many sort of, you know, <laughs> trying to demonstrate that he should be um, selling for this man in fear of getting slapped. And And Santino, again, smart for him because he's, you know, he's in the beginner class and obviously it's it's abuse, but you know had he you know beat the shit out of Cornette it, you know would have been the end of his time in OVW so and in hindsight it worked out great for Santino it was the uh, kickstart of his career but yeah Jimmy was just again obviously overreacting smacking the hell out of him. but I I'd, I'd seen Jim smack the shit out of himself before to make a point
2: yeah hey I know that you're good friends with Brian Alvarez from uh, wrestlingobserver.com and um and, and I know that Meltzer and Cornette, you know, Cornette's taken an extreme view of, of some of the new style of wrestling and and uh, and, and Meltzer sort of tried to push back a little bit. And I don't know where their personal relationship stands. I think they argue on Twitter, but I don't know if they like, you know, laugh about it on, uh, you know, on, on the phone or if there's legitimate heat. But all that aside, what what is your take on 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 Cornette and and you know look the wrestling business has changed you know you're an old school guy um you know you've been a producer you've been an instructor you you know you've been on all aspects of it what, is there any legitimacy to what Cornette says and it's just the way he says it or
1: do, is it one of those things where you just got to kind of accept that times have changed well i think there's legitimacy to what everybody says on some front obviously sure. not with everything they say and this is where I get annoyed in that there's so many people that think it's either old school or it's new school. Where to me you can take many aspects of old school psychology, the timing, the rhythm, the the working the crowd, the emotional investment of the crowd and you can adapt it to highly complicated spots, false finishes, etc. I and I've you know I've done uh, you know training seminars and stuff and you will have really staunch old school people that, you know, seem to be thinking that, you you know, you can't kick out of these moves and you shouldn't do near falls and you can't do high spots. And it's like, they're talking about what they preferred best, which is great. You know, if you liked a slower, more basic 1960s style, it's like, that's great. But, you know, these are kids that are trying to get booked on shows today. And it's like, that just doesn't fly. But that doesn't mean that, as long as we're doing spots, we're new school and screw psychology. Because if you do new school high spots, moves, wrestling, if you will, with a degree of old school psychology so that things build, so you don't do 10 high spots that are at a complication, oh my God, level at you know 87 in your first two minutes, and then the last two minutes are less exciting, it's like, okay, you need better old school psychology, but if you're just going to go out there and work, a, you know, the head for 10 minutes, it's like, OK, be prepared to be unemployed in 2020. <laughs> like, like it, I, I just I get annoyed when it's the all or nothing mentality because there's a middle ground here. You can do. I hate the analogy, but it's the only one that works without a long explanation. You can do the five and six star match type thing. But if you throw in a degree of rhyme or reason you can please everybody because I don't think there's a high spot junkie out there that will hate a Kenny Omega match for the sake of it because it made too much sense. So yeah, I, think I
2: you, I agree.
1: You Go know, ahead. so I, I think it's, it's, it's that finding some middle ground and, and use the foundation that's been there since, you know, day one, try to get emotional investment, try to make that connection with the crowd, try to build things that make sense, but also to, we can't use a hip toss as a finish. It's 2020.
2: Yeah. The only time I legitimately got hot, we were, I, uh, we're promoting a Legends of Wrestling show. in uh, It's Brian Knobbs company and, um, in, in Augusta. And, you know, we had Duggan and, and Ron Simmons and the Nasty Boys and Scott Steiner and, you know, guys that obviously aren't going to be able to do that kind of stuff for the most part. Um, and we put on a pre-show match. And the five guys that were in the – pre why you got five guys in a pre-show match, that's another story, but I didn't have anything to do with that. And the five guys went out there, and they proceeded to do every 360, 540, uh, you know, uh, Canadian pile driver, you know, every high spot, crazy dive. And I'm thinking to myself – this is just a warm-up match. These guys are the stars that people paid money to see, and you guys are making them look like idiots. Quite frankly, and I told those guys when they got back, I said, quite frankly, if this was the old days, you'd, got, you'd all get stretched and then thrown out the freaking locker room. So I don't know. I got hot about that. But but other than that, I I, I get it. You got to change with the
1: times, or you can't, and you could be miserable like Cornette. I, I, and I respect but, Cornette. But, but to that, I, I do agree with you, and that's something that I think – is being lost, especially at the indie level, it's the, we're selling a show, not each individual match. And I think that's where you do need to build. And, and I, I really hate the the concept and the theory of stealing the show because it's not always everyone's job to steal the show. Yep. And, you know, it's, you know, if, if I was making a movie, I wouldn't want somebody that I hired as an extra trying to have the coolest fight scene when I'm trying to push Jackie Chan. Right. So you do have to, you know, to quote the rock, you know, know your role to a certain extent. Now you should still try to go out and get over, but you shouldn't try to be winning the internet with gifts. If you're the match before someone else and you're told that you're not the feature part of the show.
2: Yeah, I, I, I do agree with that. And, uh, that's sort of a lost start. Um, so you left Smoky Mountain Wrestling um you you ended up in Japan for a little while uh but your next big taste of um of uh, US competition so to speak was going from uh Jim Cornette's territory to Paul Heyman's territory which I always find fascinating because of their personalities and their differences and similarities how how was how was the uh how was uh go how was it going from Cornette to Heyman and uh, did you recognize any similarities or or were just
1: two big personalities but different kind of guys? Um, I've always said they're the opposite side of the same coin. Yep. Because so. they are both very passionate. They both really know wrestling and have a very distinct style of wrestling that they like. They're both, you know, great promos, smart guys. So I really enjoyed working with both. And thankfully, I did have Japan in between, which at least was a bit of a bridge. Uh, because yeah, if you thought culture shock going from Calgary to Knoxville was, (laughs) was hard going from, you know, Jim Cornette, Smoky mountain to ECW, Paul Heyman was, uh, it was a couple cultures removed for sure. Uh, but I, I really liked working with both. Now I was obviously in a much different place in my career too, where in Smoky mountain, I was really just trying to learn. And in ECW, I had learned a lot more. And now, granted, I still had a lot to learn because I had to, you know, learn how to work on television and and really find a character. And, and I think, too, I think that's one of the big differences with, with Paul is that I found, at least it's just my impression, with Jimmy, he would look at you and see who in wrestling history you reminded him of. All right. And if you, you know, if Jericho and I reminded him of the Rock and Roll Express, he's going to push us like the Rock and Roll Express. Or if he reminds us of, you know, killer Tim Brooks, you're going to be the new killer Tim Brooks, where I found with Paul, he would look at you and try to find what's unique and special about you. And then he would put you in a situation where that would be highlighted and allow you a bit more to find yourself. And that's where I credit Paul with finding Lance Storm. In that before that, I was really just Lance Evers, really good athlete, skilled wrestler that just went out there and wrestled really well. And I found a personality. I don't like using the term character. Um, characters are fake. They're, I found a part of my personality that I could use. I found myself. But it was um, Candido helped bring me in. And I had knew Candido from Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And I like Chris. I got along with Chris. We lived in the same apartment complex in in Knoxville. So when you get to know me, I'm much more of a smart ass. I have more of a sense of humor than you would think. I pretty much had to. And I would joke around and be sarcastic with Chris. And I think Paul saw that when he's sitting over there with Chris Candido, the dude's got a personality. Yeah. But at no point in time ever that I've seen him, does he? So what did Paul do? He put me in a program with Chris Candido. So I could then take that part of my personality that I sat backstage ribbing and and riding and making fun of Chris, and we did it in a program on television, and I found myself. and, And to me, that is the essence of the Lance Storm character, if you will, in that Lance Evers, the person, when he gets to know you, he's sarcastic, he ribs you, he makes fun of you, he says stuff to insult you, but he does so in a joking manner and he really hopes you don't take offense he's hoping you'll fire back and insult him too because he finds that funny but lance storm says it because he means it and ah. he's doing it to be mean and you know so if you make you know again, if you follow me on twitter i'll I'll make fun of hurricane i'll rib hurricane or don Callis because they're my buddies and shane will fire back like crazy but we're just screwing around where Lance Storm legitimately thinks you're a piece of garbage, and he's saying these things to you because he wants to insult you and hurt your feelings, and that's really the only difference.
2: That's actually fascinating, uh, and 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 you nailed the difference of of Cornet and uh, and Paul Heyman when it comes to uh, to what they see as far as a character. It's I've I, I've been around this business thirty years, and uh, rode in a lot of cars with a lot of guys, and did this podcast for three years, and I don't know that I've ever heard it describe better. So I appreciate that. That was, uh, that's fascinating. So, um, you ever have any problems in ECW with the paychecks or you're, you're always, were you always cool?
1: Um, I had minor, um, when, when checks started bouncing, uh, I had a couple and it's like, Oh, just redeposit it. And they did. So I was never behind at that point, but I was in a point where I was renegotiating a new contract. And because of the Delays in paying people. Paul had put in a clause that, as long as he any breach to your contract that he can fix inside of thirty days isn't a breach. <laughs> so I'm realizing that well, technically he could pay me thirty days late on every, well twenty nine days late on every single check. So, oh my
2: god, that's tremendous.
1: And I, and I felt I had the ability to probably get booked elsewhere and go elsewhere. So I wasn't willing to sign that, and I put into place in Paul that and we hadn't signed a contract, but we were working on a verbal agreement while we worked out the details. I said, I'm okay with this, but I want a three strikes you're out rule. So if a check's late and you fix it in a week, great. That's one strike though. And if a check bounces and and you've got three in it, the third one, that's a breach of my contract is null and void. And he said, okay. And at that point in time, my checks were FedExed to my house and did not bounce again. Of course. So at that point, the only check I'm technically owed for is my last one, because you work your last show. Like, again, if I worked this weekend, you get paid when you show up the next weekend, you get your check from the last week. So you're always paid one week behind, which, again, you know, WB was that way, too. Right. Um, WCW, you got to check every two weeks. So I never got my last check from Paul, but I wasn't, you know, big time in arrears like uh, a lot of other guys were.
2: So did WCW reach out to you or did you kind of reach out to them? Was it mutual or did
1: they come after you based on uh, what, what they saw in uh, ECW? This is such a funny story that when I was, again, when, when checks were, were doing that, I used Jeff Merrick, who was part of uh, Live Audio Wrestling at the time. I'd asked him to let people know that I would certainly be interested in hearing offers. And I got an email from a fan to my website that said, you should contact Terry Taylor in WCW. He'd be really interested in your work. And I'm like, basically, you know, who's this dumb Mark, right? This is (laughs) fan. I don't know who the hell he is. And then a week later, I get another email from him, and it's an email forwarded from Terry Taylor. And it says that if Lance Storm can contractually talk to us, we'd be really interested in talking to him, let him know that if he is able to legally talk, to reach out to me. So I did. And it turns out it was a 15 year old kid from Medicine Hat, Alberta, who was Terry Taylor's internet stooge. (laughs) That if someone.
2: There's more than one, but that's a different story.
1: (laughs) But I I guess if this kid saw someone on a wrestling show somewhere he thought it promised, he would forward it to Taylor Taylor, and Terry would actually look at it. So I reached out to Terry. And then I think the next day I was flown to Atlanta to meet with uh, Bischoff and Russo and worked out my uh, my contract then.
2: Were, did you know when you came in that you were going to be fast-tracked? I mean, they basically put every title but the world title on you at once. Um, did you know that, or were you, was that something that you were surprised? Because a lot of people back in the day you know, got the song and dance, and then they came in and, and didn't
1: exactly go the way that, that uh, was promised. No, I wasn't promised anything specific. Um, and, and really, because I've, I've watched it back, uh, I was, I was following the, the full retro nitros with Alvarez on the observer site, but I was in as a babyface doing silly run-ins for, you know, a month before the big push, but no, I had no idea. I was, I was going there to negotiate a favorable contract for security and more than creative. And I've told this story before, uh, Vince Russo's first, and again, it wasn't a pitch so much as just a statement, but he's sitting there. He's at the table. I'm sitting across from him, and Eric's just sort of standing behind him because I negotiated the contract with Eric but talked more creative with with Vince. And he's looking at me, and he says, you know, off the top of my head, my first idea for you is you're going to be Eric Bischoff's illegitimate son. What? Because you have the same arrogant look on your face that he always has. (laughs) I'm like, okay, this doesn't sound promising. And I look over at Eric, and Eric's like almost rolling his eyes with what? because I think Eric's only like eight or 10 years older than me. And he had thought of the idea because Eric was involved in a lot of angles and guys were hot at him and mad at him and stuff. And he's Russo was pitching this idea that is like, you know, someone goes to attack Russo and you run in and save him. We're like, why is this guy saving Bischoff? And it would eventually be uh, revealed that I'm his illegitimate son. And I was just like, okay. And he's like, well, that's, you know, just off the top of my head. It's not like that's what we're going to do necessarily. I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, so again, I negotiated the deal. We worked the contract out and then the first TV, I think it was salt Lake city. I didn't work it, but they flew me in to do photographs and promotional information and stuff. And I ran into Eric in the hallway and he just stopped me for a quick second. He's like, just so you know, I kiboshed that whole Illusion Sun thing. <laughs> I'm like, okay, fine by me, buddy. And, uh, and that was it. So then I just, you know, I started doing the run-ins and I did a very short program as uh, Kidman's tag team partner against the Filthy Animals. And then when the U.S. title tournament thing came up, that's when I got the the call from Johnny Ace, who was pretty much my agent Um, from that moment on saying we're putting the title on you uh, in this tournament we need to decide what exactly your finisher is going to be and how we're doing it and that's when the push started and even then it was like it wasn't till i you know okay i won the u.s title that's what they said and then the next week you know you get to nitro and they're like um yep you're fighting veto for the uh hardcore title and you're winning that and i'm like oh okay and then the following week is was actually the following. When I won the third title was the day after Jericho's wedding. And I was there. Yeah, you were there. So we all had that, you know, six o'clock in the morning yep. flight from Winnipeg to Nitro. And Chavo was there, too. And it's like Chavo is the dude I wrestled uh, to win my third title. And it's like, neat. I hadn't even been to bed. I went from <laughs> Jericho's wedding to a Denny's with Don Callis to the airport. So I hadn't even been to bed yet. If If, if Chavo had, it was for like an hour and a half. And I got to Nitro and I was like, okay, you're winning the cruiserweight title from Chavo. I'm like, okay. (laughs) And it's like, like I never had a chance to even think about it. It was just, okay. And, you know, then you're standing there with three belts and it's like, wow, this is pretty cool. Let me ask you a question. Did you, as
2: you were, as you were being pushed and, and, and had three titles and a whole, uh, group built around you, team Canada um, so you're, you're, uh, establishing your greatest success probably on a, on a worldwide level. Did you ever get the feeling though, that the promotion sort of falling apart around you, even though you're, you know, you're getting a hell of a push or did you not even get that
1: sense? You just were uh, I, worried I, about yourself. I focused more on myself. Cause that was the thing. So many people ask me, it's like, why would you go to WCW in 2000? And I think I like many, Thought that the company's always going to be there. Ted Turner has always been behind it. It's going to exist, and you know, creatively, it may be you know rudderless at the moment, but it'll settle out and go somewhere, and 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 it'll still exist. So that was my main focus. I wanted security. Was looking long term. Knew there was craziness going on, and when you're so busy doing your own stuff, where again, you know, the thunder after I won the cruiserweight title, it's like I had to defend all three belts on the one show. So it's like, I got three matches tonight. I'm not paying attention to the fact that, you know, um, Rick Steiner is doing an angle where it's that Buff doesn't want to do the job that the Booker told him to do and he's going to swerve him on the finish. So I didn't know how crazy it was, but assumed it would always be there at least. And, you know, I think many people were in that position at the time.
2: Before we get to the end of WCW, I will never forget uh, how hot, uh, Jim Duggan was, and usually a, a mild-mannered guy. Uh, I don't about having to, you know, his whole his whole career was USA, USA, USA. The beard and the mustache. I mean, you know, and and I'll never forget how hot he was uh, about having to shave and then join Team Canada. Do you have any memories of that? Were you uh, were you there when when uh, he had um, when he found out about it, or was that just something that? Uh, just
1: part of the craziness of WCW in your mind? Um, I didn't find out about it, and I, and I certainly didn't see him express any dissatisfaction. I thought it was terrible. Yeah. Like, there there's there's a root character to Jim Duggan, and the fans liked it, and they respected it. And I thought it was a complete 100% betrayal of, Of everything he'd done in the last, I don't know how many, you know, 20 years or whatever. And and so so that, and it was done out of nowhere. So I really, really hated that. Because I just, there's certain things you don't do. And and turning Jim Duggan on the U.S., nobody wanted it. I don't think anybody sincerely bought it. I had, I don't know if I actually pitched it to anyone, but I'd certainly mentioned it to my crew. But it's like, when I found out they were doing it, it's like, I wanted to explain it. Because again, Jim had the battle with cancer. Right. i I wanted to pitch the I had convinced him to join our group for universal health care <laughs> because and at so, least things never die. but there was a, a motivation at least. He had had the battle with cancer. He had a lot of medical bills. It's like if he has a relapse and it comes back, it's like he's done. And it would lead to, because again, they just turned him back later, you know, it's like it could have led to. After he's around us reluctantly, because that's the whole piece, that's where you get the emotion. Because it's like, if he was doing it reluctantly for that, it's like the crowd would have sympathy for him. And then when he finally, you know, has had enough and does the ho oh, USA, USA, it's almost like Jim Duggan has decided he would rather die red, white, and blue right. than be anything else. And it's like, to me, that's the Jim Duggan character. And that's why. Like you said, you know, you had him on your show and it's like, you know, OK, he's out there in a blue pair of gym shorts and he can't do anything like the young guys do today. But it's like crowds still love him. Same they match,
2: s- move for move, no matter where he goes, uh, no matter who he wrestles. And it's over every time I've seen it uh, like a million bucks. Biggest, biggest pop on the show always. Because
1: they love Jim Duggan and yep. they understand Jim Duggan. And if you buy a ticket to see Jim Duggan, he's gonna come out there, he's gonna look like Jim Duggan, he's gonna do his hoe, he's gonna have his two and it's like certain wheels don't need to be reinvented, and Jim Duggan was one of them.
2: Yeah. I, I think I think that he thought if I and I don't want to put words in his mouth, I think he thought they were trying to get him to quit. So out of out of just spite, he did it, I think, uh, just just because they weren't gonna get the best of him, so to speak. But um,
1: I wouldn't yeah. argue with him if that's his. <laughs> that yeah. wouldn't surprise me at all.
2: So you talked about, or you you referenced the end of WCW. When did you find out, and what were your thoughts, and how long uh, did until you found out that you were your contract was being picked up by WWF at the
1: time? Well, uh, I think technically, I found out. when everyone else did was when you showed up at Nitro and saw a WWF truck in the parking lot. (laughs) Like I had heard rumors and was told they were buying it, but you would have been there. You remember when we had the meeting where the Turner execs came in and said, Eric Bischoff and Fusion has bought the company. They're now going to be in charge creatively while we dot the I's and cross the T's, but they're now in charge. Like we had this meeting with Turner execs and then two weeks later, you find out that, oh no, they're not. So, when you hear even strongly substantiated rumors and comments that WB's buying it, it's like, I don't believe that shit. So until, and again, I, again, with Jeff Merrick, he was my uh, my liaison. It's like I kept talking to him. It's like, "What are you hearing?" And he was good friends with Benoit. So he would talk to him, and he's like, "Well, I'm hearing there's a list of you know ten to fifteen WCW guys that they absolutely want. And you're on the list. So I'm like, okay, so if this happens, I appear to be good, but until I, you know, arrived at whatever that, uh, hotel was in, uh, in Florida, when we did the final nitro and saw the WWE trucks and it, it was, who was it? it was Shane McMahon, Pat Patters, Jerry
2: Briscoe, Jerry Briscoe and, um,
1: Bruce Pritchard, Bruce Pritchard, Jerry Briscoe and Shane, when they walked in, it's like, all right, this is official. Yeah. And, and, and I remember, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I, I, I laughed and I still remember this. You know, because everybody gave the speech, everyone get a chance, at everything else. And when I, when I met Shane for the first time, he came up to me and he tried to hit my, if I can be serious for a minute, catchphrase, but he got it wrong. <laughs> and it's like, I was always wondering, it's like, okay, does he want to sound like he's in the know, but he's not really as in touch as he should be? Or does he want me to know that he knows who I am, but I'm not important enough for him to really know who I am? <laughs> And I don't know which it was. And I've always gotten along with Shane. I really enjoyed working with him once I actually got there. But um, that was sort of my memory. And then the other memory I remember is I was the last WCW talent to leave the locker room.
2: Yeah, I got the hell out of there and went and had a drink. Um, you go up to WWE right around WrestleMania. There's, did you, you're a smart guy, obviously, from this conversation and, and your body of work. Um. Did you kind of have a feeling it was going nowhere fast when there was no Hogan, no Hall, no Nash, no Flair, no Sting, no Goldberg, no, you know, did you kind of have a feeling or are you just going for, with it and see what happens?
1: Um, I was certainly going with it and hoping for the best, but there there was right from day one, just an adversarial vibe to being there. And, you know, that first WrestleMania Uh, The the Mania 17, where we all sat in the, uh, you know, the luxury box or whatever, and we're there to support Shane O'Mac. We were, from what I was told, again, it was secondhand, but I was told we were originally going to be involved in the match. But Sean Stasiak stooged off that we were going to be there on an internet interview he did, like, on the Friday because we all got called, you know, Wednesday, you know, less than a week before. Hey, we're bringing you into WrestleMania. And we're like, oh, cool. And it was Johnny Ace that called me. He was always the the liaison guy. And he didn't specifically say, hey, don't tell anybody Fabe this. But it's not my first rodeo. <laughs> Unless they tell you to promote it, you shut your damn mouth. Right. So I'm, so I'm like, cool, and kept it quiet. Well, Sean Stasiak did a internet radio interview. And said, oh, yeah, we're all being brought into WrestleMania. We're going to be at Mania 17. And I was told Vince lost his shit and wanted to just cancel us all and not bring any of us there. But tickets were booked, planes, were booked, you know, all that stuff. And apparently someone managed to calm him down and still bring us in. But we were just they're sitting in the box. They're having nothing to do with this. And we were sort of shunned. And I think that was like step one of, oh, man, we're in trouble.
2: <laughs> yeah, that would be like you know, and no disrespect to Sean Stasiak, but that would be like that would be like last last week before the a couple days before uh, Slammiversary, I dropped the podcast that says, oh, be sure to order Slammiversary so you can see D- Gallows and Anderson and EC3 and the Motor City Machine Guns. Oh, and um, and uh, uh, Heath Slater. You know, it's like what are you doing?
1: Yeah. Like you, 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 you've been around long enough that I'm assuming you would have talked to either Scott and Don. It's like, can I acknowledge any of these people? And it's like, I didn't
2: even ask. I, 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 you know, I was, I was, I, I, you know, Scott would give me little drips and drabs of, of, of how things were going, uh, on, uh, you know, we would text usually at like one o'clock in the morning for whatever reason, when he was done with his day. And, um, you know, I never asked. I just kept my mouth shut. I wouldn't even tell my kid. I have adult kids who are huge wrestling fans and I wouldn't even tell my kids cause I was afraid my kids would go on somewhere and stooge it off. So, you know, and my wife could care less. So, um, <laughs> so, you know, I just kept it to myself, but, uh, but yeah, I, it, it was exciting, but you know, you don't, I just knew, I didn't even ask, you know, how much should I say? I just didn't just promoted that from what I know, it's going to be a lot of interesting things. Hey, um, any, any high spots from the rest of your WWE run, or you just kind of eventually uh, fit in the uh, the, the, the system and, and just did your thing because you kind of keep quiet and keep your head
1: down for the most part? Well, I, I was lucky, and I contend still to this day probably. I had the easiest integration into a WWE locker room ever because I think you know most other people come up one at a time, and you always have that microscope. Right. Where we came in with a large group, And I was friends with Jericho. I was friends with Justin Credible who was there. I was friends with the Dudleys who were there. I knew JBL from working in CWA Catch. So I knew a lot of, oh, I knew Edge and Christian. I knew Rhino. Um, So when we came in, when the WCW guys were sitting at the, the WCW table in the corner of catering, I was sitting with Edge and Christian and Jericho. And also, too, I came in at the same time that Buff did. And, you know, (laughs) I was just thinking that, (laughs) yeah, it's hard to get heat when you're standing beside Buff Bagwell. So I think of all the guys I adapted to, you know, the in-ring of WWE quicker and the fact that I was friends with many in the WWE locker room, I didn't have that outsider stink as bad. So I I think I had it much, much easier than most when they get there. So I, you know, I acclimatize myself pretty quick and you know, getting to work like that first program that Mike Osso awesome and I did was with Edge and Christian, who were two of my friends that I worked shows in Winnipeg with. Right. So there, you know, there wasn't that, which happened in a lot of matches where there's WB's guys going, you know, why am I going out of my way to make these guys look good? And you kind of have to understand that too, where, you know, that war was pretty heated and it was in many cases the, you know, we're going to try to put these other guys out of business. So if you're in a war for your livelihood and then you win... And then you're told that the guys you beat are coming in. We want you to put them over. I can certainly see where there's animosity there, but at least working with guys who I was buddies with um, really made it easier.
2: Yeah, I had Eric on the podcast one time, and I said to him, I said, for years and years you went on to us in the locker room and the boys about how you were going to put the WWE out of business. Did you ever like have a plan like what you were going to do after that? He's like, Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm thinking to myself, that's the, that's the answer I would least expect. I figured he had grand plans, but it was like, nope, never, never did. Just, I was obsessed. I think, I, I I don't think he said he was obsessed, but something to that effect. Um, why retire so
1: young? Um, there was a lot of reasons and this is where I've always been again, before I got into wrestling, I was going to, you know, university, become an accountant. I've always been a balance sheet guy. Um, you know, uh, Positives versus negatives. And my wife, uh, my kids would have been, this is what, 2004. So my kids would have been, you know, between four and five for my youngest and between, you know, around eight for my oldest. So these are prime years for your kids. My wife was starting to get tired of me being on the road. And then to be perfectly honest, WB Creative, as far as I was concerned, was in the toilet. You know, I was doing nothing, you know, as you know, the dude with the large penis or dancing with Val Venus. So my body was hurting a bit. I had had a at this point undiagnosed uh, lower back issue Um, turned out to be actually just a psoas muscle that was spasming. But I was having a lower back issue that was bothering me. Creative was completely unrewarding. And at the time, I didn't have faith that they would do anything else. So with bad creative, you're low on the card. So, you know, money was less than it was, you know, two years previous. My body's hurting. My wife's getting tired of me being on the road. And I found myself, too, where they were calling up a lot of guys who I didn't think were as talented as I was. And I'm the guy on the road being told to teach them how to work. You know, I'm working with the Gindrax and the Cades and the, you know, the uh, yeah, working with Randy Orton. I was working with, you know, the Chris Nowinskis of the world and I'm trying to, or being told to, you know, the law resistance guys, you know, try to make them better while they're getting pushes and more creative than I am. And I'm just like, if you just want me to, you know, I'm, I'm not happy with the ways I'm on the road all the time. I'm like, I need to look for something else. And the thought was, it's like, well, if you're wanting me to educate these guys and teach these guys, it's like, why don't I just do that? So I had looked into being an agent, producer now, but it was an agent at the time. And I talked to Fit because Fit and I have always been tight. And I, yo, Fit's the best. So I asked him, it's like, what's the producer gig pay? What's your schedule? And to be honest, the producer pay was, you know, at the time about what I was making being low guy on the totem pole on the roster the schedule was a little bit lighter and I'm like, Oh, a lighter schedule, make my wife happier. I won't have to be having this terrible creative and I'd make about the same money. And it's like, why teach guys to have my spot when I can just have a spot that's designed to teach. So I talked to Jim Ross about doing that. And I, I guess they had just fired Rip Rogers as their developmental trainer in OVW. And Jim said, we'd really need a trainer right now. Would you be willing to do that? And I asked him two questions: what's the schedule and what's the pay. And the pay was a little bit less than what I was making on the roster. Well, I, when we eventually negotiate, that's what it was. They didn't offer me that, but I managed to get them up a bit and the schedule was much more favorable. So I'm like, fine, I'll go be a trainer. So I went and was a trainer for a year and a half. It's funny. You
2: keep saying, uh, about your wife, my wife was tired. I was home like when are you going out on the road again you got any indie dates uh no it's i don't know i can't speak for your marriage but i know in a lot of wrestling marriages it's an adaptation when you're gone all the time and they have their certain way of of of, of running the household and then all of a sudden you're there and you're saying you know why don't you do this why don't you do that and they're like why don't you go back on
1: the road but uh well (laughs) it uh, is a transition because you have to realize that you're a guest in your own home
2: yeah, we just celebrated twenty eight years of marriage. Why I, I've been blessed to be to 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 have somebody like that who puts up with me. I got no clue, but uh, uh, there's a special place in uh, heaven for for the wife. Um, so you opened up your own school, your own academy. Did you? I, I know you take a lot of pride in what you do, and you're very good at what you do. Did you even in the most optimistic moment think that it would become the place to go worldwide? to
1: become a successful professional wrestler? No, it, it ended up being so much more than I expected. I didn't expect when I started to have the international travel that I did. Um, cause again, I was renegotiating my deal with the, the office cause they had just started deep South and, and, and I still had OVW and we were on different pages on where we wanted to go. And it was Danny Davis that Suggested me it's like you know you could probably be quite successful just running your own school at home and stay the hell home and I'm like shit that's a hell of an idea (laughs) and I decided to give it a go but I didn't expect because you know I would say over the course of my my almost 15 year run with with Storm Wrestling Academy I would say probably less than one third of the students were Canadian where I, I was hoping to, you know, draw enough Canadians to have a business and maybe get a few others. But it ended up being this amazing international draw that, you know, I got students and I've got a list on my phone, you know, in notes of, you know, the however many, you know, 1920 countries from around the world that I had students travel to Calgary to train with me. So it ended up being so much more and, and quite different than I expected when I started. But it ended up being fantastic because, you know, I mentioned the ages of my kids, you know, Five and eight to be, you know, within a year, whatever it was when I started it, I got to be home through the vast majority of their childhood. Like, my daughters do not have any real memory of me being on the road as a wrestler. So, all those stories of, you know, dad missed birthdays, dad missed Christmases, it's like my kids don't have that. I was home. So, the school ended up being a real blessing because I got to be there for the vast majority of my kids getting brought up, right? My wife did the, the bulk of, you know, until they were five and eight, but um, I was around for a lot more of it.
2: Yeah, I, I, I looked up the, the list of, uh, of, of, of graduates who have gone on and done uh, uh, great stuff, and I was even, I had known a lot of them, but I was even surprised at some of the names that had come from Australia, from, uh, from, from all over uh, from England uh, Germany people that had come from all over the world to train that you trained and polished up and that are now drawing a paycheck from a company
1: so uh, that has to feel good
2: um, so why'd you decide to close it then
1: uh, again a, b- a bit back to the balance sheet um, there all was back to the balance sheet well it, it, to be honest, I was physically getting worn out I'm a hands-on trainer I do way. i, I Running the school, I think, was harder, harder on my body than wrestling was. Wow. Because, again, I had a match with every student that came, well, that finished. If they quit in the first week, they didn't get a match. But if they stayed till the end, you know, I had a singles match, at least one, with every student that went through. I demonstrated, you know, all of the moves. So it's like, I the last couple of years, I got a, a former student of mine who lives in town who's really good to help with the, the bump taking. But up until the last couple of years, it's like, Every time a student gave a suplex for the first time, I was the one that took it. Every time a student did a hip toss for the first time, I was the one that took it. So I was bumping my ass off and demonstrating is worse. Like when you're teaching people how to kick, it's like you'll spend three hours in one day kicking and stomping your foot. And it's like my knees would ache for days afterwards. So I was physically wearing out. And to be honest, business was dropping off a bit. And so I started looking at what are my options. And it was a case of now where, you know, my one daughter doesn't even live at home anymore. My other daughter is, you know, 9 I'm trying to think the exact time when I decided to look into it. But, you know, she's 18 or 19. She's got her boyfriend. It's like, not only do my kids not need me home, they don't necessarily (laughs) want me home. So that changed. So and my wife, because she's not raising two kids, and maybe I've right. been and I've been around for 15 years, maybe now she's ready for me to go back on the road. The the possibility of me going back to traveling a bit wasn't a negative anymore. So I reached out to um, a couple of places, and you know WWE got back to me right away with the offer for the producer gig that would make me uh, as much money as when storm wrestling Academy was at its absolute busiest and more money, um, with where it was at the moment and the schedule was going to be favorable. So I decided that, you know, now was the time. And and when I got back there, it was, it, it felt like it was the right decision too, because it was so great to work with higher end, top notch talent again, rather than, you know, beginners and intermediates. So it was nice to get back in there creatively and mentally with, you know, guys at the top of their game, like Seth Rollins and KO.
2: For sure. Um, Did you produce any of the matches at uh, WrestleMania at the Performance Center?
1: No, I was done by then. I wasn't uh, released yet, but that was when the Canadian border was already closed. Ah, And and they were just using the Florida local guys. Um, I don't remember the exact show, but it was still in late March, you know, 20th, 27th ish, you know, somewhere in there. I think we were about a week, 10 days away from WrestleMania when the border closed and travel stopped and then I was no longer brought in. And it was pretty much all the local based producers that were uh, in Florida that did that. So I was done coming to work before Mania.
2: I was going to ask you that I forgot that the border was closed, but I was going to ask you how it was to produce that. Cause that was very early on in the whole empty arena thing. And, you know, you have the biggest event of the, in the, of the year with no fans and it was certainly uh different, but, um, so, so now you, now you're, uh, you're a, uh, look at the, what do you call it? The spreadsheet,
1: uh, balance sheet.
2: Yeah. So you look at the balance sheet now it's 2020 in a pandemic, uh, any ideas about what you're going to do, or uh, you just uh, playing it by ear at this point?
1: Well, I'm I'm back doing weekly uh, audio shows, actually video as well, uh, live on Twitch every Friday with Brian Alvarez um, via the Observer site. So I'm back doing the weekly podcast with him. Uh, we're I guess it's eight thirty Eastern. We're going live on Twitch. Then they'll be up as podcasts or video podcasts on the site after that. So I'm doing that to at least do something. But until the border opens up, there's really not much I can do. I've been training like a madman because I've got nothing else to do. So I'm I'm probably in better shape than I was in the last you know five to ten years. Uh, my body feels great because I haven't bumped in a, <laughs> a year and a half. So I'm looking at keeping every option open. And when I'm allowed to travel across the border again, uh, I will see who's interested in employing my skills and uh, we'll see where that lies. But Until the border opens up, I can't do too much, so I uh, work out in my home gym, I walk my dogs, and I do the audio show with Brian Alvarez.
2: You you talk about being in great shape. Any chance that you would go somewhere and wrestle again full-time or or part-time?
1: I I think full-time is not in the cards, but I'm to the point now where I feel great, and I I never say never. Um, I, I, I don't know if that would be my first choice, but I'm training to keep all options open. Cause depending on how long I have to sit in my den, uh, on this side of the border, I, I, I may need to, uh, ramp up the, the income post, uh, COVID who knows?
2: Well, you're nothing but a class act. And one of the smartest guys I've ever had on this podcast. I appreciate your time. And, uh, like I said, been want to do this for a while. And, um, and, uh, I think right before I reached out to you the first time you had, uh, you had agreed to go to WWE. So, you know, and then afterwards you had a 90 day non-disclosure. So, uh, I'm glad that we we're able to talk. Sorry. It's under these circumstances, but a fascinating, uh, uh, fascinating discussion. And I really appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. It was great talking to you again. All right. Hopefully we can see each other soon. I'll, I'll buy, I'll buy you a beer. Molson.
1: <laughs> Make it a coffee. And we got a deal. There you go.
2: All right, Lance, best wishes to you and your family. Thank you so
1: much. Are right, you too. Thanks brother.
2: Wow. Blown away, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, uh, that was one of the more, not to take away from any of the conversations I've had over the past three years, but that was one one of the more fun conversations. His honesty, his thoughtfulness, uh, intelligence really shined through. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And um, and be sure, if you like what you heard, uh, you, as, as he said, they're doing something every Friday, 830 Eastern with uh, – Brian Alvarez on Twitch. So uh, be sure to check that out or you, I'm sure you can find it at wrestlingobserver.com. I want to thank Lance. Wow. Good stuff. And, um, and looking forward to uh, another big guest next week, talking to a lot of people. And uh, we're going to be talking to a lot of interesting people in the next four to six weeks. So if you're liking what you're hearing, please subscribe. If you don't already Uh, be sure to leave a review if you can and uh, spread the word, tell your friends and neighbors. And join the ride on Twitter at David Penzer, all one word. Until next time, until next week, I'm David Penzer, still sitting ringside.
1: Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer
0: Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence.
1: This is a Landry Football Quick Fix on Radio Influence.
0: My hope is as I look at the baseball environment and I see, again, a sport without a bubble, but a heavy dose of testing, that is a combination that's going to only increase your chances of getting more positive tests. And what will you do when that happens? Put them in quarantine, put them on a COVID list, which you can go on a COVID list now if you're just exposed to it. Well, if you can't practice, you can't play in a, in a smaller roster, I, I don't know how you, you get through a season if you're going to be that aggressive with your testing, yet you're not going to be in a bubble. I felt since March that the NFL would go to a bubble environment. They have not. Don't does not appear that they have any plans to do that. I'm guessing everything is possible. But at this point, that's not the plan. That's not where they're going. Um, So I am concerned. I'm concerned about it. In in essence, if they're not going to be as aggressive with testing in college football, there may be people that have it that are asymptomatic that won't ever be caught because the testing is not as frequent. But if the testing is frequent and you're without a bubble, I I think that leads for a very, very difficult combination. (laughs) The Landry Football Podcast with veteran scout and coach
1: Chris Landry can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts,
0: and RadioInfluence.com.